gospel reading this morning, I want to meet you in the third chapter of Matthew. Jesus goes down to the Jordan River. In one of the most fascinating moments, in my opinion, in the entire gospel account of Jesus, is Jesus' baptism in the Jordan. And here's why I find it fascinating. The book of Mark is very clear that the baptismal ceremony happening at the Jordan was for two things. John the Baptist came out of the wilderness preaching the gospel of repentance and forgiveness of sins. You probably know that repentance is from the Greek word metanoia. That means to change your mind. Forgiveness of sins is obvious. How many of you have sinned? Okay. So you've repented in that you've changed your mind at some point about your life. You don't want to be what you were. You don't want to go where you were going. That's repentance. At its core, that's repentance. Repentance also includes I've changed my mind about God. God's not mad at me. God's not angry with me. God's not fighting against me. God's not putting up roadblocks in my path. How many of you know the church needs to repent constantly of how we've preached God, how we've perceived God, and how we've presented God? So constant repentance is part of our discipline. If you're not repenting every day, I don't know that you're taking God serious. Because there's an aspect of God that every day I need to tweak. The Father's better than I thought He was. There's more mercy than I imagined. He loves me more than I could have known. That's repentance. John comes preaching, repent and receive forgiveness of sins. Well, forgiveness of sins is obvious. Everyone in this room admitted that they had sinned, and those of you that didn't admit it sinned by not admitting it. So all of us were in need of forgiveness of sins, that we had breached the law of God, we'd broke, we, we went against what we should do, and at some point we needed the forgiveness of God. And a John comes preaching this, and everyone comes responding to the Jordan River in a fantastic, almost new ceremony called water baptism. Because if you've read the Old Testament, they don't baptize by water. There's no moment where Moses is dunking people in the Red Sea for forgiveness of sins and for repentance for God. But the Jews do have water ceremony. They're big with water ceremony. In fact, one of the most famous Old Testament water ceremonies is when you touch a dead body or you are ceremonially unclean. You would sprinkle the ashes of a dead heifer into pure water and then you would splash that water over the person. In a way, it was a pre-New Testament baptism. Water washing away. So John takes this revelation of water and he begins to preach a gospel of repentance and a gospel of the forgiveness of sins. But at its core, he begins to preach the gospel of the kingdom. I'm a bit fascinated with John the Baptist. I find him not only an interesting character in the way he looks, the way he acts, comes out of the wilderness, but also the reality that Jesus at one point called John the Baptist the greatest prophet that the, that the world had had. And you think, why? how is he the greatest prophet? Because in our modern mentality, when we think of prophet, we think of seer. We think of someone who reads what's coming up around the corner, which is an inappropriate definition of prophet. The Old Testament, or even up into the Greek definition of prophet, was not someone who could read the future, but someone who could interpret the present. A prophet is someone who looks at what's going on and can interpret what's happening. Jesus called John the Baptist the greatest of the prophets because John read the moment and read that they were in the moment at the cusp, what he called the kingdom is at hand. How many of you know at hand is pretty close? I saw someone holding up a sign the other day on the street corner that said, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I thought, you're 2,000 years too late. The kingdom of heaven is not at hand now and then. The kingdom of heaven was at hand then. And all you had to do is reach your hand out and grab Jesus. 
who is the walking, talking embodiment of the kingdom. And so John the Baptist comes saying, the kingdom's at hand. It's going to show up any day. I'm not sure what it's going to look like, but I think it's a person. And when he gets here, I baptize you with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. His fans in his hand. He's going to purge his floor. I'm unworthy to unloose his sandals. This guy's the one. And when he arrives, things are going to happen. Now, if you're standing there by the Jordan, you expect that if he arrives, he arrives with fanfare, trumpets, a blast, a military procession. Perhaps his first event is to overthrow Caesar, or at least to shoot some volleys Rome's way. Make some noise, do something big. And instead, Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan. And in one of the most interesting twists of the Bible to be baptized by him. I say it's a twist. We don't catch that it's a twist. But what's John doing? He's baptizing people into repentance and forgiveness of sins. Why is Jesus coming to be baptized in the Jordan by John? If baptism is for repentance, mind change, and forgiveness of sins, why would Jesus come to be baptized? Surely a Messiah need not repent. Surely a Messiah needs no sins forgiven. John's thinking the same thing I'm thinking because verse 14 says John tried to prevent him and said, I need to be baptized by you and you're coming to me and I want to pause right here and give John some credit. I would say the same thing. What are you kidding me? I'm not going to dunk you in the water. You are, you're the one. No one else knows you're the one, but I know you're the one. And you being the one means that the one should be the one doing the baptizing, not the one being baptized. And yet Jesus answers and says to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then with no more argument, he allowed him. So John the Baptist then baptizes Jesus in the Jordan. And this happens. I want to read out through the end of the chapter. He'd been baptized. Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly, a voice came from heaven saying, This, what a statement. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. I want to minister this morning on a simple two-word topic. It's very popular in, the, in our internet mentality, software technology mentality. I want to minister on identity theft today. Because I really believe that what happens at the Jordan River is the proclamation of an identity that will carry Jesus throughout his earthly ministry. And it's a microcosm in a way of what you and I need to understand happens to us when we enter both the literal waters of baptism and the spiritual baptism that happens when we enter into the death of Christ. Because we don't just go down into the death We come up into a newness of life, but we come up into an identity that is marked by repentance and forgiveness of sins. That's where we're heading today in this message. On our way there, I want to solve, try to solve, if we can, that little Rubik's Cube of why in the world is Jesus being baptized if baptism is repentance and forgiveness of sins. That's worth wrestling over because I'm not here to tell you that Jesus needed to change his mind, and I'm certainly not going to stand up here and tell you that Jesus had sinned and therefore he needed forgiven because the Bible contradicts that statement. Hebrews tells us that he committed no sin. So I choose to lean to Hebrews that knows Jesus was sinless. So why do this? And this is our first indication that Jesus comes not to please himself, but to be everything we need him to be. Remember Jesus at one point in his ministry would say the son of man came not to be served, but 
to serve. In other words, I'm not here so that you will do for me. I am here to do for you. In that great 13th chapter of John, Jesus, knowing that all things were finished, knowing that all things had been committed unto his hand, stood up and girded himself with a towel and knelt in front of his disciples and washed their feet. And they were deeply offended because you can't be a Messiah and the lowest servant of the house. And yet Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. This is how we do it in the kingdom. That's a, that's a message that needs reproclaimed in the church today. We're following the Jesus that doesn't have to win every argument. That doesn't have to be the conqueror in every confrontation. That doesn't always have to come out on top financially. That doesn't always get to elbow his way into authority. That sometimes he just takes the L. That's Jesus. And Paul would even come along and say, can you not allow yourself to be wronged, Paul said. And he got that from following Jesus. And so Jesus comes along, steps into the waters of baptism where he's... A, a baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins, though he doesn't need either one. But he does it because you need both. And so when John says, I'm not going to baptize you, Jesus says, you must. Because we have to fulfill all righteousness. And righteousness is a, a word in the Greek that in your English translations always gets translated righteousness in the New Testament. But it's the same word in the Greek for justice. And how many of you realize our outlook on righteousness might be different if our English translators had at least translated it justice, I don't know, once? How about seek ye first the kingdom of God and his justice? And all these things should be added unto you. How about I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation. Therein is the justice of God revealed to those who believe. I, we're used to the word righteousness there. But in the Greek you could have the word justice. So what if Jesus is standing in the Jordan and says to John... You must baptize me to fulfill heaven's justice. You must baptize me because they need baptized and whatever they need, I'm going to do. If they need to die, I'm going to die. If they need to resurrect, I'm going to resurrect. If they need to repent and be forgiven of their sins, I'm going to walk into their repentance and their forgiveness of sins. So that when we repent and receive forgiveness of sins, we are not first. We are at best second. Christ is first fruits. Christ has shown us the mind change towards the Father. Christ has shown us the justice of sins forgiven by going down into the waters of baptism. And Paul would spiritualize what had been literal. Because the early church was literally dunking people or dipping people or pouring water over people's heads. And we still do that as a sacrament in the church as a way of showing people the death that they've exacted in Christ. But Paul spiritualizes the literal in Romans 6 and says, As many of you, as we're baptized into Christ, we're actually baptized into death. So that when you come out of that waters, you come out into a newness of life. So that when you meet Christ, the old you dies and the new you raises up. And that you don't get to reach back and just grab the old you whenever it's efficient. Whenever it works better. That's like pulling the corpse out of the ground. He said, but instead you are different than you used to be. And that means that when Jesus goes into the baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins, we go into the baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins. But there's a lot happening here. Like for instance, Jesus baptized in the Jordan. A river not lost on an Hebrew audience because the Jordan is a very important river in the Old Testament. The Jordan marks a boundary. By the way, 
it holds within it an allegorical connotation. The Jordan is always the boundaries of where you've come from and the marker into where you're going. So the children of Israel would journey through the wilderness 40 years. When they get to Kadesh Barnea and it's time to take the land of Canaan, the crossover point is the Jordan River. It's the Jordan River they take 12 stones out of. It's the Jordan River that they put 12 stones from the old world into so that they can be reminded of where they've come from and they can have washed away the memory of where they've come from. The Jordan marks that boundary between where you were and where you are going. Jesus steps into the Jordan as a way of showing that where you go in, you come out a brand new person. And Jesus really flips the motif because out of the Jordan, he goes straight into the wilderness, which is opposite of what Israel had done. Out of the wilderness and into the Jordan, Jesus goes into the Jordan and then out into a wilderness. Because actually what's happening in the gospel with Jesus is that Jesus has become Israel in a single person. Everything Israel had failed to do, Jesus will succeed in doing. Every promise given to Israel is not fulfilled in the Middle East today in a geographic part of the world or will be fulfilled someday when Jesus returns. Every promise to Israel is fulfilled in Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, all of the promises of God are yes and they are amen in Christ to the glory of His name. How are God's promises fulfilled? Not in property, not in temples, not in religions, not in geography, but in the man, Christ Jesus. That's why Jesus says we must do this to fulfill all justice. All justice is going to be wrapped up in this, changing our minds about God and receiving forgiveness of sins. So at the Jordan, the marker of a boundary between what was and what could be. And a dove floats down out of the heavens and rests on Jesus, also an image not lost on his audience. Because the dove had left Noah's ark at the end of the Noah story. And the Bible says the dove wandered around at first and came back. And then when the dove left, he wandered around and came back with an olive branch in his talon. And finally, when the dove left Noah's ark, he didn't come back at all. And it's easy to use the allegory that the dove floats through the passages of the Old Testament. A type and shadow of the Holy Spirit hovering over some of the stories, anointing the Elijahs, touching the Isaiahs, moving on the Daniels. Until he finally comes to a resting place at the Jordan River. And the Bible says the Holy Spirit descended like a dove and rested on Jesus. And just as that dove at Noah's Ark didn't land until it found sustenance, the dove of the Holy Spirit doesn't land until it's found the ultimate sustenance. So only in Christ do you find the ultimate fulfillment of the Holy Spirit. You can talk about the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit all day long, but if you divorce him from the person of Christ, you've created a strange God. Only in Christ is the resting place for the Holy Spirit. When you see Jesus, you're seeing the Holy Ghost personified. You're seeing what he moves like, what he sounds like, how he acts. And just in case you're wondering if those two might even be inferior to the Father, at one point in his ministry, one of the disciples raises their hand at a Jesus meeting in John 14 and says, all this teaching is fine and good, but just show us the Father. And Jesus says, Philip, how long do I need to be with you until you realize that if you see me, you have seen the Father? And so in Christ, we have the personification of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all in one person. And Jesus says, dunk me because they need dunk. This will fulfill their justice. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit emerged in their failure, emerged in their repentance, emerged in their immersion. Wherever you go down, He goes down. Wherever you come up, He comes up. 
And out of the waters of baptism, the voice. And this is the key. This is all of the message wrapped up in one moment. Because out of the waters comes Jesus and out of the heavens comes the voice. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. For me, one of the powerful aspects of this is my beloved son is what Jesus has not done. He hasn't earned it. Not through our lens. Because when we talk about people who have great anointing in the church, they're people who've earned it. Prayer meetings, fastings, performances. They've memorized their Bible. They know how to quote scripture. They're great preachers, great singers, great teachers, great church builders. We assume those are the ones who are close to the heart of God. I grew up in Pentecostal charismatic churches and I would hear things said like, here's old brother so-and-so, he's paid the price for the anointing. I used to hear that all the time. When I went into the ministry, I was 15 years old. I thought if you'll start early, you can pay the price. I celebrate 30 years of ministry this April. I'm 45. I haven't found how to pay the price because the goalpost keeps changing. The goalpost keeps changing on what the price would be, on how much you'd have to do because it changes with every circumstance and every culture and every church and every month. What's the price? I don't know. I haven't figured out how to pay that price. What I've come to learn is that the justice of God doesn't demand that I pay the price because the reality is this is my beloved son happens in Jesus before he performs one miracle. He hasn't turned the water to wine. He hasn't raised the dead. He hasn't fed 5,000. He hasn't done anything. And it's important that God declare the identity of Christ as Son prior to doing the miracles so that all of us who enter the waters of Jesus' baptism can realize that our belovedness doesn't happen on the backside of 40 days of fasting. Our belovedness doesn't happen because we've memorized Scripture or because we go to the right church or because we figured out how to praise the Lord. Our belovedness happens because we've entered into Christ, because we've stepped into the river, that the boundary between where we were and where we could be. In that moment, God goes, man, I love you. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And I'm so thankful for the cross-referenced Gospels. I don't get scared at four different snapshots of Jesus. I get excited. It's like the camera shoots in four directions. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Sometimes it doesn't look quite the same. You notice this? The story will happen in Matthew, and then you'll read it in Mark, and it's a little bit off, and some people go, how can you trust the Bible? All those contradictory stories. Let me tell you a couple things I think is happening. I know this is a little heady for a Sunday morning, but we're going to cast it out there anyway. Take it or leave it, right? Part of what I think is happening is is if four of you are eyewitness to a crime and a cop pulls up and says, tell me what you saw, you get four different statements. The car's two different colors, the driver's three different races, and both people were at fault. They go, what's the use of these eyewitnesses? There are no use for those eyewitnesses. They saw something, but they saw it through their lens. There's the key. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John see some things through four different lenses. I'm okay with that. The second thing I believe is happening is that the Holy Spirit's doing a lot of different things at the exact same time. I say all of this for this reason. Both Matthew and Mark dip Jesus down into the waters of Jordan. Both Matthew and Mark have a dove coming out of the heavens arrest on him. Both Matthew and Mark have a voice coming out of the heavens, but neither Matthew nor Mark can agree on what the voice said. Matthew says that the voice said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Mark said that the voice said, you are my beloved son 
in whom I am well pleased. Paul says, the Holy Ghost said both. To the crowd assembled, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. To the water-drenched Jesus who stands between heaven and earth, between where he was and where he's going, who stands between being the kid and the savior of the world, I need one piece of information to carry me all the way to the cross. What is it? You are my beloved son and whom I am well pleased. And what I learn in this account might be this. Every one of us have the universal language of love. In church or out of church, we know it's the highest emotion. You don't have to be a follower of Christ to know that nothing trumps love. Especially if you've ever had a kid and you fell in love with them the moment you knew you were going to have them. Before you even have them, you love them. You love them when they stink. You love them when they're sick. You love them when they're down. You don't stop loving them when they're rebellious or when they run or when they curse you. You love them anyway because they're yours. One of the painful things about it is all that's good in them, all that's bad in them is you. And all that's good in them is your spouse. And that's hard to get over. (laughs) You don't find anything good in you good in there. And that's humbling when you're a parent. Especially when you're dad. So love is that thing that you don't have to even describe as in church, out of church. Everybody knows it. They know what it means to feel it. They know what it means to experience. They might even have a revelation that God loves them. But that God loves them blanket. Because they'll say God loves all of us. We're all God's children. You hear that phrase? I actually don't put this in quotes because I disagree with them. I actually do agree with them. I do believe the whole earth are the children of the Lord. I think Paul confirmed it to the Athenians when he said that we are all his offspring and he is not very far away from us and in him we live and we breathe and we move and we have our being. And they were worshiping strange gods. That's bold. That getting kicked out of a lot of pulpits. But being God's children and being God's son... Mm. Now that's a gospel distinction worth preaching about. Because being God's children is the default position of the loved. It's not a human being that doesn't have the image of God, that God didn't breathe down into, pull up out of the dust and stick the, the, the power of the Holy Spirit into them by breathing into their bodies. But to be a son, John would write in John chapter 1, for as many of us as believe on his name, he has given us the authority to call ourselves sons of God. Paul would say that as many as believe with believing Abraham in Galatians 3, are the sons of God, as many as believe on Jesus. So I believe that what happens in Jordan is that Jesus hears, you are my beloved son, because what we need to know in the midst of the world is not that God loves us or that we're all sons of God. What we need to know is that God loves me and that I am a son of God. And I'm here to tell you that you've had a group identity as Christian or member of this church or child of God. But the revelation that God wants you to have is that He loves you individually. That you are an individual son or an individual daughter of God. And when you take that equipment, then you are ready with heaven's justice to go face the world. I would also propose that until you have the revelation that you are a son, you are woefully prepared to go face the world. 
There's a wilderness that waits on the other side of Jordan. The Bible will say in Matthew 4 that Jesus goes down into the wilderness led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. It means that the Holy Ghost holds his hand as he walks into the wilderness and says, you have to go into this wilderness. And the reason that he has to go into the wilderness is, no news flash here, you go into wildernesses. You've been in dry places, dark places, valleys, places that haunt you, places that disturb you, places you'd rather not be, right? If you haven't been, hold on, you're just not old enough yet. You will. It's the universal human condition is suffering. This is why we could get past religious distinctions, racial distinctions, economic distinctions, gender distinctions, to get down to the one thing that really matters. Everybody hurts and everybody suffers. If we could live in that zone, we'd realize that we don't have anything on anyone. We just haven't hurt as bad as they have yet. Or that maybe we've hurt in a way they don't understand yet. That most of our distinctions are simply pain distinctions. But that someday that pain's coming our way. So Jesus takes his identity and he doesn't go perform a miracle. Because the identity is not that you'll do miraculous things. The identity is, and this is key, and I'm rushing just a little bit. The identity is so that you can go face the snake that you must inevitably face. Because how many of you know there's a devil waiting in the wilderness? And the devil that waits in the wilderness is just another personification of the snake that waits in the garden. The Bible brings him back time and again. At first he's a snake in the garden, then he's serpents that bite Israel in numbers in the Old Testament. And then he's the snake with Jesus in the wilderness. And when you get to Revelation, he's a seven-headed dragon that comes up out of the sea because the Bible presents the narrative that whatever is in the dark and haunting you doesn't get better. It just gets worse. So in Genesis, he's a talking, pleasant snake with legs. (laughs) And in Revelation, he's a seven-headed dragon with horns ascending out of the depths of whatever scares you the most. And in the meantime, you have one piece of basic equipment given to you by the Holy Spirit to confront the enemy. And this is the, the power of the wilderness encounter. So Jesus goes into the wilderness armed with, I am my daddy's kid and the very first words out of the devil's mouth in Matthew chapter 4 verse 3 if you are the son of God command that these stones be made into bread if you are what you think you are prove it How many of you realize that the enemy has always been attacking you in one basic area? We we, we think for a long time that sin is the mode by which the devil does his greatest work. But you actually don't need the devil to sin. You're going to do that pretty good by yourself. As much as so many of us were brought up in in church cultures that told us that people sin automatically because there's sin in them when they're born. There's a little pushback against that in Genesis. Remember when Cain is mad at Abel, and God shows up in Genesis 4. This doesn't get enough pulpit time, I don't think, in the American church. We love to preach where God shows up to Adam and Eve in the garden, but we don't talk enough about God showing up to Cain. Cain's the first generation of actual human who's been born on the earth. And God shows up to Cain and goes, Cain, what are you so mad about? And Cain goes, you know, I'm just ticked off. I'm not happy with the way things are going. And God says, sin lies at your door. But it's your destiny. Here's the word we miss in the English. It's your destiny to rule over it. Not sins in your heart. Why don't you fall on your knees and repent? No. 
even though his mom and dad, Adam and Eve, sinned before he was born. I thought he was supposed to be a sinner bound for hell the moment he took his first breath. But here's God going, you know what, your issue is not what's in you, Cain. Your issue is what's outside of you. But what's outside of you is working really hard to get in there. So I want you to take control of yourself, Cain. Own who you are now, Cain. Because if you own who you are now, you can beat what you might become. And here's Jesus coming out of the water saying to John, this is how we got to do it because this is how they're going to do it. They're going to enter into a world where they got to repent and change their mind about God and they're going to have a sin debt. And when they enter into that world, they're going to walk into the wilderness that's owned by everything that scares them to death. Every snake and every dragon hiding behind every rock. And sometimes it's abuse. And sometimes it's doubt. And sometimes it's fear. And sometimes it's manipulation. And sometimes it's debt and poverty and pain and hopelessness and bankruptcy. And it's going to be all kinds of things and they're going to walk into it and they're not going to know what to do because they're not going to know who they are. But if they knew who they were, they could at least realize that they have a father at home that loves them. Because the ultimate blanket of that is the prodigal son. I asked the Holy Spirit for a good landing spot. How do we take you from corporate identity to individual identity? The best way to do it is to show you a story. And to me, it's the prodigal son because here's two kids who know they are sons. They know they're their father's kid, but they don't have the identity of sonship. How do I know they know they're their father's kid? Because they both show up at the inheritance party. Hey, Dad, can you give me what's mine? And both boys show up. You ever notice that? The younger brother's the one that asks, but the older brother shows up too. We don't ever talk about that. The older brother shows up too. In effect, the father has a death because in the Hebrew culture, to give out your inheritance, somebody had to die. So in effect, the father dies to both boys. It's the Jesus moment. And both boys receive the fullness of their inheritance. And the younger brother goes off and he spoils his. And the older brother goes off into the fields to work as if it never happened. Hmm. How many people in the world today are out there spoiling their inheritance as if they don't know they have it? And how many of us are in here working as if we don't know we have it? That's a good question, right? feels better to not be the hog slopper, but neither one of us are eating at dad's table. See, I've been around Christians my entire life. I haven't met very many of them that know how to eat fatted calf, wear shoes of righteousness, robes and rings. Most of them just know how to plow fields and believe for revival. They plow fields, believe for revival, always saying God's about to do, about to do, about to do. I haven't met very many sons and daughters. I met a lot of children of God. I met a lot of people go, I'm saved, I'm one of his, but not a lot of people that eat like it, live like it, rest like it, talk like it, act like it. And a lot of people come into a revolution, revelation, revolution of grace, and they just throw off all their religious restraints and go sin a little bit and call that grace. And I think sometimes it starts that way because a lot of people are faking a bunch of stuff in here today. There's a bunch of stuff you'd love to do, but you're afraid God will send you to hell if you do it. The minute you get into grace, you go out and try a little bit of it. Pretty soon you realize you're just slopping hogs. doesn't make you smell good. doesn't make you live right. The reality is it just takes a while to smell like a pig before you realize you'd rather smell like a, your father's son. That's okay. We've got to be patient with people in the church. Let them walk that out. We love them in the way the father loved the son that was slopping hogs. Right? Because a lot of us have been the elder brother so long, what the elder brother's problem is, he's really jealous of the younger brother. Because when the younger brother comes home, he goes, that been wasting money on whores. And all he's thought, where'd he come up with the whore line? That's not even in the story. It shows you what the older brother wanted to do with his inheritance. Because we always tip our hand, we talk about sin long enough. 
I grew up around preachers. Man, you listen to preachers long enough, they'll show you what their problems are. They'll preach them all. Every one of them will come flying out eventually around them long enough. But they're no different than us. We do the same thing. So there's a blanket understanding in the prodigal son story that we're our dad's kid, otherwise don't show up at the inheritance. But the problem is how long it takes them to individually realize it. And here's the sad part of the story. Neither of them ever really understand it. The younger brother goes down to slop hogs. One day he's so hungry, he wishes he could eat the slop they're eating. His smell is so bad, he's even, he doesn't smell it anymore. That's what happens when you're in the filth long enough. I believe I'll go home and be as one of my father's hired hands. He doesn't say, I believe I'll go home because I'm one of my dad's kids. He's already out that in his mind. And maybe you know you don't out being dad's kid. If you didn't know it, read the prodigal son. He comes home, dad puts his arms around a stinky kid. God, this is good. Dad puts his arms around a stinky kid, puts his new robe, puts new shoes, doesn't even let the kid repent, meets him at the end of the lane. You think you came to God? He wasn't lost, you were. You didn't find Jesus. Jesus found you. He walked down to the end of your lane. He grabbed you before you were even half ready. Threw a robe on your back, shoes on your feet, ring on your fingers, said... Don't give me that servant talk. You're one of my kids. Hey, go kill the fatted calf. I love this part of the story. Bring the fatted calf out here and kill it in front of him. You ever ever caught that? Bring the fatted calf out here and kill it in front of him. Because God wants you to see the price that's been paid for your justice. So that you don't ever forget something died for you. (laughs) If we're not preaching a crucified Jesus in the church, we're ripping the sons of glory off. They don't get to see what's been done on their behalf. So in front of him is the crucified Jesus. He goes in and he eats. I don't know if he ever knew he was a son. He was just glad to be home. Out in the backyard is his older brother. He won't even go into the father. But notice the father always goes to us, even the older brother. Dad goes down into the field and crosses the field in the middle of a party for the son who was dead but is now alive. And he finds that older brother. Son, all that I ever had was yours. You, this is what he's saying in effect, you have always been my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But you don't know it. And because you don't know it, you've divorced yourself from my table. You cut yourself off from your family. You've become judgmental and cold. You've become the arbiter of justice rather than acquiesce to the justice of my father. And because of that, you can't even be excited when people meet the revelation of God's love and God's grace because they haven't met it your way. You're going to have people that enter this place who are just dead. This is their last stop. And it's our chance to proclaim to them not the blanket love, hey everybody, God loves all of you. But to let them have an individual revelation of the love of God. And if you're so picky about the revelation of the love of God that you're scared to let people have it while they're in sin, you're going to push out a lot of younger brothers who smell like pig. Because they're in sin and they stink, but they too need a revelation. I am the beloved son in whom he is well pleased. And in that, they can go face whatever it is hell has to throw their way. You see, the enemy is out to steal your identity by getting you to try to prove it through good works and performance. 
The entity, the enemy is out to steal your identity by projections of what you'd like to be instead of the truth about who you really are. Every time you put on a projection about what you'd like to be instead of admit to who you really are, you are a believer living in the dark rather than the light. Jesus said the evil man stays in the dark. He said, but the man who does the truth comes into the light. Notice he didn't say the good man comes into the light because there ain't no such thing. He said, the evil man stays in the dark. The man who does the truth comes to the light. I propose that the guy that comes to the light is just as evil as the guy that stayed in the dark. The difference is he's met the truth. And he walks himself out into the light and goes, here's who I really am. And I know we're scared to do that because people will kill us. In the church. Vilify, stone, crucify. If you bring the real you into the light. So create a space where people can bring the real them into the light. And be loved in spite of themselves. That's the waters of justice. And Jesus comes down and goes, now we can go face that enemy in the wilderness. Church, I feel like we got about 30% there this morning where I really want to be. But I feel like the Holy Spirit has done a washing today in this house. Would you bow your heads with me for just a moment? I just want to pray a prayer that you have an individual revelation of your identity. We did not cover a lot today on how the enemy's trying to steal it. That was, my, that was my goal. That's why we titled this Identity Theft. The re- reality is I think the enemy goes to a lot of different lengths. He goes to three lengths in the wilderness on Jesus. and All of them are not the kind of temptations you and I think are relevant temptations. But for Jesus, they were relevant because all three of them, in one way or the other, were shortcuts to the Messiahship that had already been promised to him. And I think what the enemy offers a lot of times for us are shortcuts that shortcut our identity. You live in a world where digital identity is a big thing. People project a picture out to the world. When that happens, it's difficult for us to even know ourselves, much less our neighbor. I'm not asking you today to be throwing masks away or declaring the real you. But I do just ask that you open your heart to a simple revelation that can only be given by the Spirit because it's the Spirit that descends on Jesus. And that revelation is you are the beloved son or daughter. Father, thank you for this church. Thank you for this chance this morning to make Jesus look good. I pray that, Father, we've put the spotlight on your son and celebrated Jesus. I pray that, Father... As we've all entered into the waters of baptism, Jesus enters in on our behalf for our justice. That, Father, we would have a revelation today, and I pray this for every man, woman, boy, girl who needs it. So many of us do. Begin the work of a revelation that comes like the Spirit descending in a dove. You are one of the sons of God. If we know it, it'll affect the way we live. And Father, affect the way we live. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, he knows you. God bless you, Pastor.